In this podcast, I'm talking with Rosé from the University of Erlangen in Germany about things like, do we need to protect our freshly sanitized ceramics from the light? And what about Airblock? Do we need that after adhesive looting? This podcast is part of the GSEM One Symposium where you can watch free lectures about this topic it's online and it's part of the preparation of the 100th birthday of the GC Corporation. Have fun listening. Welcome to today's show. I'm connected over the internet with Jose. Welcome to this podcast, Jose. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here and You're at the university, and actually, I would like to know about the different challenges when it comes to looting, because we have different substrates in these in our teeth. For example, we have kind of filling material, enamel, dentine, and maybe even some remainments of professional cement. That's right. Yeah. Let's start with the basic. When you're looting, for example, an onlay or something. What are you doing for cleaning the preparation site? Well, always when, when we are looting or mainly adhesively looting, we need really clean surfaces. That's, that's right. That's the basic principle. Cleaning is when you remove the provisional, you have to remove the remnants of cement and, and everything which is in, in this gap or was in this gap. So talking practically, the first step is I take a, a sickle scaler And, and first of all, I try to remove all the big, big remnants. And afterwards, air abrasion is a good possibility. You have to be careful because you, you can always damage the margins of your preparation. Yeah. So when you do that, I often use aluminum powder, small, like 35 microns with low pressure. And that's a good possibility to clean. Of course, always when we, when we do looting, It's important to try to keep the, the operation field dry, to try to keep away saliva. Saliva is a terrible contaminant, which inhibits the, the adhesion massively. And the problem with saliva is, because of its polarity, it, it sticks very firmly to two substrates. So always be careful. So using rubber dam when possible, it's, it's important. So, well, as I said before, remove the, the big things with a sickle scaler afterwards, for example, aerobration with powder. Or if you don't have anything similar, you just can use a polishing pastes for, for prophylaxis. That would be also an alternative. Yeah. That would be like the first step of cleaning. When you use paste, do you have any recommendations what we shouldn't use or what we should use? Some. People say if you're using a, a polishing paste which, which contains fluoride, you probably are going to inhibit etching, but there's no, no evidence at all. So in my opinion, when using a polishing paste, it should be like in, very, like in a lot of situations in the industry, it should be a material which you know how to use it and which you feel comfortable with. That's, that's the most important thing. And this will yeah, make a good result, in my opinion. When you look at your surface before sandblasting, for example, do you usually cover the surface with a dentine bonding agent, like the IDS protocol, or do you even try to cover it with composite flow? 
What's your go-to in these cases? Even after prepping? Well, most teeth in which I have to do a preparation, it's, for example, for an indirect restoration, re require a build-up, for example, an adhesive build-up. And, of course, when you do this build-up, you have to bond to dentin, for example. I think in most of the cases, it's sufficient sealing. The dentin bonding you use to make the adhesion of the, of the build-up or to fill any parts of the of the cavity first. I think it's for the first enough. Of course, there's this immediate dentin sealing protocol, which in my opinion is a very interesting possibility. So you can do this extra if you want. But for usual, I think I have no actual evidence for it. But I think if you just do a buildup or a part partial reconstruction of the two substrates and you do your bonding before, this would be for the first enough. If you don't cover everything with, for example, a composite or a build-up, would you distinguish between, for example, the more carious-affected dentine? Does this have a different kind of adhesion? Would you treat it differently than the normal fresh-cut dentine? Well, for normal fresh-cut dentine, I think as, as we have just dentine as a bonding substrate, for the first, I think universal adhesives are a good possibility for doing this, this sealing. You don't, when you are Merely in dentin, I think it's okay just to use, for example, universal adhesive because you don't need to etch with phosphoric acid. I think if you don't, it has some pros. If you just go for the no etch protocol when you're merely in dentin, because you have this infiltration of the bonding, the demineralization is just as deep as the infiltration of your adhesive. And it's a good possibility to use universal adhesives when you're merely in dentin. I think this will work good on, on fresh cut dentin and it will also work good on dentin which was close to a caries affected area so probably it's a little bit more sclerotic than fresh cut dentin so I, I think maybe if we do just a scientific study and we go for the micro stuff and, and look inside maybe there we can find some differences but I think in, in clinics we won't see any big differences if we use it on fresh cut or maybe an osteotic dentin. Are your students at the university also using universal adhesives or do we, are they being taught differently? We are very classic and we want to show the students that bonding to dentin and bonding to two substrates is not like a magic thing. You just put one drop of one solution on it and you will have adhesion. We use a, a very classic multi-bottle system still today. It's a, it's a three bottle system consisting of two primers, primer adhesive, and afterwards we use the bond. We know we've been using this protocol ever since. I mean, I started at university in the year 2009, and adhesive dentistry in Erlangen started like 1994, I think. And always they stick always to this multi bottle system, which you can use as selective edge or as total edge. It's working fine and it's, it's very reliable. You can give it to anybody of the students, which are, so you can give it to somebody who's really good and somebody to, who's maybe not so good. And the result in addition will be the same. And we have like no postoperative sensitivities. So it's very reliable. And I think it's also important for the didactic effect that as a student, you learn that, that bonding to two substrates is something which takes a lot of, of chemistry a lot of a little bit of time that's also important it's not like rub it on it and that's it maybe today very modern universal adhesives are capable of that but i think when you learn it you have to learn it like okay 
step one, step two, step three, and then you will get a good, good bonding. And afterwards, if you're trained in doing this bonding, you will capable to do to use any other system which is more simple than, than this multi-bottle system. It's interesting that you said that the results are, uh, don't differ a lot under the students. Do you think they would differ if we would just give them, tell them this is also a three-step system, but it's all the same universal adhesive? Do you think it would also differ the result? I still don't know it. I mean, the new generation of universal adhesive, it seems to work very fine in clinics and also the scientific results in, in vitro are very good. But, you know, when it comes to something so important as adhesion, you, know, you never change the running system. So we slowly trying to introduce the students to universal adhesive. So we got just one, one exercise in the Phantom course. It's a course in Germany, which we do before starting with the clinical course. And then we got one cavity where we show them how to use an universal adhesive. I think it's, it's important also to learn how to use an universal adhesive because there are little differences to the older systems. Yeah. It's like you have to, to blow it away until all the solvents are evaporated. That's important. That's a big difference if you're using like a, a multi-bottle system where the last step is using this unfilled resin yeah, where you have only just to reach a homogeneous layer after blowing. So it's important also to train them on that and we're slowly trying to show them also how to use a universal adhesive. Interesting. I actually would have guessed that the result probably is also the same because there might be less mistakes. <laughs> yes, yes, that's, that's, that's probable. That's probable. But um, I, I'm very careful because, uh, well, okay, let's first try it and afterwards we'll see the results. I agree with you. It's simple using a, a one-step universal adhesive. It's, it's more easy. But you, you have, I think, these this little things, for example, like to blow it away until all the solvents go away. That's, that's like... A point I think which which is important and yeah let's let's see uh, it's something maybe we have to to make a, a study on it if there are already some of them for the didactic thoughts about it it's completely okay students should learn the hard way and I mean at my university the gold standard adhesive was a two bottle system yeah uh, and I was using it very long actually before I switched actually I switched because. I had problems with pooling in really yeah. deep cavities. Mm -hmm. And I had to spend a lot of time to get rid of this pooling, to get a nice x-ray in the end, of course. Yeah. After <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One kind of advantage is that I can mix just a dual activator quite easily inside some mm -hmm. of these universal systems yeah. and may be even have, better, have the best of both worlds. That's right. There are new possibilities. There are also materials which are compatible with others and then you get like the dark curing of the adhesive. You can also uh, do the light curing of the adhesive directly um, before. It's developing. That's, that's the thing I, I really enjoy about new materials and new technologies to, to see it. it we're moving forward. We're We're learning from things that are working and we're moving forward to make it more reliable, make it more, more simple. Yeah, but this takes, takes a lot. Takes a lot of research, takes a lot of, yeah, of chemistry. We will see it. Let's come back to the looting part again. Yeah. Because uh, basically it's all about looting. Mm -hmm. We kind of got a track, but which is fine. There are yeah. no rules in podcasting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, we see a lot of universal cements as well coming to the market. Yeah. Dual cure self edge cements. So which 
team are actually you right now? For example, when it comes to, for example, onlay or inlay looting, are you just team light cure or team dual cure, if you say? And how do you judge the kind of simplification which are coming up? Or, or should the dentist rather stay on the standard dual cure thing? Polymerization is, is a big is a big point. It also depends a little bit on the indications you have. For example, if if you want to have something which has to do with a lot of aesthetics, with very thin ceramics, it's maybe better to go for the light cure path, because you always have this this fear or this risk of of discoloration when you have like dark curing systems inside a looting resin. So for veneers, probably maybe going for, for a light cure or a pure light cure looting resin this might be a viable thing. First of all, I think a dentist should always use the materials he feels comfortable with and he knows how to use them. That's the most important thing. And then we know from, from studies we did that dual curing looting materials and always trying to, to make it cure extra with light improves the conversion rate of resins, of looting resins. And increases the strength of the looting. So whenever possible, do a dual light curing. This depends on many factors, on the thickness of the restoration, on the translucency of the restoration. And if you can really go for a dual cure, just do it. Do it because it will have better results on the long term. When it comes to light curing, you need a good lamp, you need a good output, and you need time. That's the most important thing because Good curing takes time that everything can react in the in the resin. So you won't cure it like in a half a second. Our results showed that you don't have a risk of over light curing a resin. Probably the only problem is the heat generation. Yeah. But going for 20 seconds, 40 seconds, it's, it's okay. And whenever your lamp has low output, you just can try to go for a longer curing time. Is the heat generation really a problem? First, it feels not comfortable. If you have, don't have anesthesia and you have a, like a, a vital tooth under it, you will feel, you will feel the, the curing unit and it's very uncomfortable. The way we do light curing actually with the lamps we have, I think heat is, is something we have to keep in mind, but we don't have to overestimate this, this problem at all. Yeah. Mainly, I think when we're doing indirect restorations, we are also dealing a lot with teeth which are not vital anymore, which have a root channel treatment. So this aspect would be not that, that important when we have uh, non-vital teeth. So I, I try to light whenever possible. But you have other situations where your material is not that translucent. Of course, then you have to rely on the, on the dark cure system of the looting resin. That's a big point. Chemistry inside there has to be very fine balanced to start and to make a good conversion. Yeah. So whenever possible, take both worlds, take light and, and take the other. So dual, dual curing whenever possible. I think we can sum up if it's like the anterior region, very thin, pure light curing is recommended. And if it's moving to the exterior, we more get in the dual curing yeah. area or would be apart from circonia crowns maybe in the interior would there be indication for you to use dual cure in the anterior if we for example have an anterior crown in the premolars or where we got more material thickness i think it's it's then it's okay to use a dual curing looting resin are you a fan of the tech cure possibility or do you move the excess cements somehow differently 
Take your technique, for example, when, when doing crown, it's good, it's fine. It's, it's a possibility really to manage the excess and do the excess removal. It's a fine technique. I use it when doing crowns, for example, when looting glass ceramic crowns. I do a lot of tech cure. It's, it's fine for cleaning and also you don't have the oxygen inhibition layer. As you take off the excess, the resin gap is polymerized or at polymerized at a relative higher level. So the, you won't have that extent of oxygen inhibition layer as if you would do it the other way around. What would be the other way around, just to remove it with a brush? Remove it carefully with a brush and then, for example, to put an air block on site, like a glycerin gel, for example, to inhibit oxygen layer. Yeah. However, this would be more like the protocol, for example, for a conventional looting with conventional adhesive looting with, with a composite. Is oxygen inhibition layer really clinically relevant or is it more or less something academic? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. Okay, we, we know that if we look at the lab on it, uh, we will see that the oxygen inhibition layer will not withstand um, abrasion or, or toothbrushing or dissolution the way like a full cured resin would do. So having that in mind, knowing that, we should try to avoid that. It's one of those things where I say, okay, we, we know it from the theory, then as we know it, just try to do it in, in clinics. We just had to look if there's any, any interesting studies on, on that point. Yeah. Do, are there any alternatives to the glycerin gale to get rid of this oxygen inhibition layer? could polish it away, but this is not practicable if you're doing it, for example, on a, on a crown or the, or the margin of a, or the margin of a inlay, for example. Um, and you don't want to have the gap. You just want to have the perfect seal, to have a perfect, ideal, even resin gap between your two substrates and your restoration. So trying to avoid this gap by putting an air block on it would be the ideal. But do you also use an air block on your direct composites? <laughs> I, would th I sometimes think about it. Well, so often you, you just do a, a little bit of adjustment and you go for the polishing anyway of the restoration. So at, at that point, you would remove also the oxygen inhibition layer. But yeah, it, it's, there are some people who are doing that. They do the modulation and afterwards they put a, the air block on it and yeah, try to avoid that. I think it's a different setup uh, when you have got an oxygen inhibition layer on, on the gap of a looting. And when you have like a thin oxygen inhibition layer on the top of a restoration, which will be polished anyway. When it comes to an indirect restoration, like the gap is like the place where erosion or maybe a decay of the restoration could start. So trying to keep this gap as sealed as possible would be like the goal of our treatment. And it's, I think it's a different, little bit a different setup than on a big normal direct restoration where we have to polish it anyway or to a little bit more of a crucial adjustment. It's okay. <laughs> it was a tricky question anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> no, but sometimes when we're talking, I kind of want to know <laughs> if you're, if you're kind of, if it's strict. I mean, if the answer is that we don't need it because it's easier to polish that area. Yeah. Makes I, sense. I think the most important thing is to know the principles you're dealing with. Once you, you know the principles to say, okay, um, If I do that, then this could happen and there's like a chemical or evidence, a clinical or a scientific evidence for it. Knowing that gives you, gives you freedom of choice to, to choose the path of your treatment and decide what, in your opinion, is, is the best way to, to go for you and for your patient. So that's a point which I like to have knowledge. So 
knowledge gives us freedom and gives us the possibility to have really good, reliable treatment for our patients. Now, there are a lot of kind of universal looting cements hitting the market, which are self-edged. Some come with an extra primer. Where do you see the indications for the future? And where are the indications now? This, this material, the so-called self-adhesive cements or looting cements, I, I prefer to call them uh, looting self-adhesive looting resins. Because when we talk about a cement, it's, a cement is a material which cures by an acid-base reaction. And the self-adhesive resin cements or looting resins, as I prefer to call them, they are resins. They, they cure by polymerization. So it would be more proper to call them, or I prefer to call them, looting resins, self-adhesive looting resins. I think it's a very interesting material class, which we've been doing research. I've been doing research on them since 2012. It's so interesting that you don't need to have to pre-trade the, the two substrates and you can gain a good addition. So it was my opinion, like a first generation when the phase came to the market, then these materials were further developed, like into this, like in my opinion, a second generation. And nowadays we're moving to this universal uh, looting, self-adhesive looting resin, where, where you can combine these materials, the self-adhesive materials, with an extra primer. So in the case you want to have more adhesion, um, you, can, you can gain that by using a, a primer, a tooth primer, which is a simple tooth primer, and which is compatible to the saluting, self-adhesive looting material. I think it's, it's a good... Uh, for example, I use it a lot when I do glass ceramics, glass ceramic crowns, for example. I prefer to loot them adhesively. And that when it's a crown, I always use uh, these self-adhesive looting materials. For example, post and core restorations, when I'm putting a, a, placing a post, it's also a good good material to do that because the addition we we gain in the root channel it's 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 okay for a post it's enough the other question is in many clinical cases for example you don't have enough retention when preparing a crown of course when you look at the book or looking at pictures you was we see this perfect cases where you have always like the perfect direction of your abutments after the preparation the perfect conicity the perfect retention but not always in clinics we have this case that we have like enough macro retention for our for our crowns for example and and that's another place where you self adhesive looting resins yeah and if you have nowadays a little bit more of retention by using maybe a primer then you can extend this you have a good all-rounder material for example if you do a, a partial crown for example so this would be like a possible or it's it's like a, something where you can use you also maybe use them Yeah, these are relative new materials, this universal self-adhesive looting resins. And this opens new possibilities. And we have to see how this develops. And this is the interesting thing. One step brings to the other and, and the materials get like more refined and you have more possible indications. And this gives you more, more freedom in your treatment to find just like the perfect indication, like the perfect material for this case you are dealing with them. Just get the best result for your patients. Right now, what does the evidence say? Is this right now supporting it, or do we need, still need to wait for some good literature? There are some. There, there's a plenty of of in vitro studies on the self-adhesive resin cements, not on this newest generation where the combination is with these primers, but for the others, there are studies showing which are the important material properties when it comes to to looting. 
And there are also some clinical studies showing that they work fine, for example, when looting inlays, for example. Some studies from, I think, from Regensburg and others from the Netherlands and others also from, from Erlang, from a colleague of mine, they are in, still in service, these restorations, and they are, they're fine. It's based on inlays. So inlays in self-edge resin in a looting Uh, resins. <laughs> I try to, you know, in the office, everything is cementing. All, yeah, even yeah. it's bonding. Yeah. We just self-adhesive resin cements. It's it's go for a classical label for these materials. Yes, there are some studies dealing with the inlays, and they are clinically working. Could there be any uh, drawbacks where the dentist should be careful? Don't use it in this indication or in this situation, or are the advantages of the let's say it's getting it's not as complex as cementation or the looting so we sh you should rather use these ones now first of all always have a look at the instructions of use from from the manufacturers and there will you find exactly all the indications which the manufacturer gives for this material when it comes to very thin restorations for example when you need a lot of adhesion for the classical self-adhesive resin cements There, the conventional looting would be rather indicated. For example, veneers should be classically adhesive. Uh, what you should go for, for veneers, you should go for a classical conventional adhesive looting. But for example, for glass ceramic crowns, it's a good possibility. Also for zirconia restorations, like zirconia crowns, self-adhesive resin cements are very good because they also can have a very good addition to zirconia. That's that's very fine. And maybe for all the materials, we got a, like a, a good good retention and you want to have also have adhesion there, you can use self-adhesive resin cements. But always there where you need like a maximum of adhesion and you go for very thin restorations, then you should always think about maybe going for the conventional adhesive pathways. And now let's see how this changes with this new universal self-adhesive resin cements. We have to see. So the Ciconia Maryland bridges are typical dual cure or self? <laughs> well, Maryland, it depends a little bit. For example, if you get like restorations which are looting to enamel, mainly to enamel, then you have to go maybe for a classical pathway of adhesion with etching the enamel. But if you've got a lot of dentin surfaces, then, then self-adhesives will work fine. I think we basically covered it. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, we can still talk a lot about uh, pretreatment of, of the different uh, indirect restoration substrates, for example. That's, that's also an interesting point. Yeah. What's the point you, uh, you find most interesting in the pretreatment? First of all, it's important to have a clean, clean surfaces. Sometimes I, I see that, that colleagues just say, okay, this, my, my dental technician al already pretreated the surfaces. For example, Ciconia, he already did the, the aeration. And when you do the try-in, This will get contaminated with saliva, so you have to clean the surfaces properly. I, for example, prefer to do the, the air abrasion of restorations by myself, so I have the control after doing the try-in. Then for glass ceramics, etching with hydrofluoric acid is, I mean, there afterwards it's clean, really. And if you don't have those possibilities, just do have to do special cleaners for that. But it's something always to keep in mind, clean substrates on the tooth side and also on the restoration side. Actually, I also etch everything personally. 
Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. You know. But the most interesting question, even when it comes to cluster make, mm -hmm. what do you do after the etching? Yeah. Do you clean the etched surface? There are some, some people claiming, well, that there are a lot of precipitates inside after the etching. Yeah, you can you can put it for example for for in the ultrasonic bath and, and cleaning it. That's a possibility. Um, others etch it. I heard etch it again with phosphoric acid. Yeah, I, th I think the most important thing after etching is also to do a proper rinsing, eliminate as far as possible any remnants. Of course, this won't have the same effect as if maybe doing an ultrasonication when we, for example, prepare specimens for the SEM after etching ceramics and we go for the SEM. We put them inside the ultrasonic bath. But I think clinically it works if you just go for the rinsing. But this is again a decision which which everybody has to take by himself. I want to be the, I don't want to be dogmatic on that. Yeah. But I think the most important thing really is to to edge or do a surface a, the proper surface pretreatment for each material, and then afterwards put the the proper in case of glass ceramics go for a silane for example. That's the important thing that maybe makes the difference, in my opinion. The silane. How long do you let it on the glass ceramic? Just this typical one minute uh, after instructions? Yeah, I, I would suggest really to follow the instructions because this process of salinization of the surfaces goes by means of a, of a condensation reaction. The solvents, and when this reaction takes place between the silane and the, the glass ceramic surface, the results are in this chemical reaction there is a condensation reaction there develops water or an alcohol and this has to evaporate so you have to give them time really to that this reaction can take place and then you will get like a very good monolayer of silane with a good cross linking so on the chair side it's like most of most of the materials suggest is 60 seconds look at the at, at silence for dental technicians they just go for longer times like five minutes And there are interesting studies where they like leave the silane, the silane like 60 minutes in an oven and then they get like amazing results of addition. But well, this is clinically not practicable. Yeah. Imagine. Oh, 60 minutes in an oven. I never heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have to, to look for the exact literature, but there are some people doing it like for 60 minutes. This is like experimental. Okay, Di Jose, I have one last question, which I actually always wanted to know. Because I've always been protecting the silanized area from light. Do I really need to do that? Well, if it's just only the silanized surface, yeah, and yes. there's there's no resin on it or anything. In most cases, you don't you don't need to protect that from light because it's just the silanized ceramic surface. There won't, won't take any polymerization reaction there. For most of the materials we use, I think you you don't need to do that. So as long as I use kind of up to date multi primer, it's okay. Yeah. yeah. Or are there any sterilization agents from the past which are light sensitive? Where does this move come from? Well, <laughs> maybe we're too young. I, I don't know. There there are some method related uh, silent preparations, but nowadays they uh, they are not uses in general. So maybe it's just the best place to keep your, your inlay. Maybe it comes from the time where you etched your glass ceramic, then you place the silane in it, and then they used to put uh, unfilled resin on the surface, probably from, from that time. 
then after play, putting this unfilled rest on the salinase surface, you had to protect him from light because this was light curing. Probably it comes from this, but just a mere salinase ceramic surface with those normal products we use nowadays don't have to be protected from, from light. Maybe it's just a good place But it's the inlay on yes. it's not getting lost. It's, it's a safe place, <laughs> so it won't fall down or something like that. Yeah, those the mysteries of dentistry. Yeah. Why do we do that? It's a myth buster for the end. Yeah, that would be a great podcast, so myth busting dentistry. Well, there are so many myths, it will be hard to even talk about them. Yeah. But different podcast. Different podcast. <laughs> okay. Thank you, dear Jose. Thank you for your back. time. Yeah, thank you. What will be the topic of your lecture? The lecture will be entitled From Self-Adhesive to Universal Looting, What is Changing? So we will talk in detail about different topics which is touched today. We'll talk in general about when we do when, when we need to have adhesive looting, which are the principles behave, behind this conventional adhesive looting procedure. And then we'll talk about self-adhesive looting or self-adhesive cementation which are the principles behind, how does it clinically work, and, the, now, and then we will see what is changing. So we will have a look on this universal, self-adhesive universal looting material, how it works, which are the principles behind, and also we will, I will show two different clinical cases, one regarding cementation or looting, adhesive looting of, of a glass ceramic restoration and then of a zirconia restoration. So we will have an overlook in detail of all this addition protocols from self-adhesive to the universal looting what is changing great looking forward for your pictures you always take very nice pictures i try to so. do my best <laughs> <laughs> i try to keep it real you know i i just these are pictures i make from that where i do it clinically it's just it's just real if there's a real pictures it's not like i have the patient the whole way there and i place a rubber dam 10 times afterwards and this is like the normal procedure I do and yeah thank you very much a lot yeah. for the talk okay thank and you see you soon okay see you thank you bye bye